Well, good morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24, that's the passage that we're in today. While you're turning, this is the last sermon physically going through the verses of Ephesians. And so next Sunday, we will have a time where you are allowed to come up and share what God has taught you through the entire book of Ephesians. So I would encourage you to look back through all six chapters and ask the Lord, what have you taught me specifically? What has encouraged me? What has challenged me? What has convicted me? So that we as a body can just see what the Lord has done through this study in the book of Ephesians. So it'll be a sweet, sweet time next week, a week that you will not want to miss. But I want to jump right into the passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm then having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. As I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to you, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. When I received this passage from Drew, I said, great, I've got the armor of God. I got this. I'm going to get this creative idea, and we're just going to like show you the armor, and it is just going to be fantastic. Maybe I'll introduce it with the movie Braveheart. We can charge the hill together. And then through meditation, over and over, over the past two weeks, I realized this passage speaks so much more than just relating armor to us. In fact, this passage is all about spiritual warfare. I don't know enough about war or battles To a non-military guy, warfare seems to be like, let's grab our gun and run at it and let's go. So I chose to call a guy in our church who served faithfully 17 years in the United States Marines and currently teaches at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. And so I called Jake and I said, Jake, talk me about this military warfare. And you know what he did? He pointed me straight to a book. He pointed me straight to the best known, most highly regarded book on military strategy ever written. It begins, the art of war is of vital importance to the state. It's a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to, re- or to ruin. This book is The Art of War, written by Sun Tzu. 
The famous quote that people see from this book from Sun Tzu is, every battle is won before it is ever fought. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. As we looked into it, this became all about reconnaissance, which is military observation to ascertain strategic information. And though Jake was pulling out all these acronyms and everything, and I got lost, thank the Lord that we have people who fight battles with knowledge and not just with passion or not just with enthusiasm. They go to the book and the book leads them to the way. To summarize, know the enemy before you go into battle. The degree of your success in reconnaissance will greatly affect the outcome of the battle. Know your enemy. So today's thesis is this. We, followers of Jesus Christ, are called to stand firm during spiritual warfare in God's power and with God's armor through constant prayer. Our three points are be aware of the battle, be equipped with God's armor, be devoted to prayer. And so that's what we're going to go through today. This isn't a light-hearted sermon because it really involves life and death. So number one, be aware of the battle. Verses 10 through 13. Is there even a battle? Paul has just shared with us in previous passage where our battle lines are being drawn. Did you know that battles occur in marriage? Did you know that battles are in our homes? They're in our churches. Battles are in our schools for the lives of our children. Battles are in our places of employment. The battle is right here in Santa Cruz County. We're surrounded on every front by spiritual attacks from the enemy. The enemy wants to take our ground. Okay, so we see that we're in a battle and that the battleground is around us. Well, then who needs the armor? Those who are in war need the armor. The reality is no one is exempt from war. Whether we signed up for it or not, no one gets a pass from spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms. Whether you realize that you are in the middle of a battle or not doesn't really matter to the people fighting it. In verses 10 through 13, there are three imperative statements that pop out when you read this passage. Be strong in the Lord. Stand firm. Put on the whole armor of God. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You see these words? Submit, resist, stand firm. Scripture is redundantly consistent. If we have our armor on, if we are firm in our faith, then we may resist the devil. And when we do, he will flee from us. But you must know the enemy. We need to be on guard. Satan is a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a destroyer. He's a blasphemer. He's a blackmailer. Satan's goal is to find gaps in the armor and to expose them. With a relentless onslaught of errors and force, Satan is after us. Have you ever experienced the schemes of the devil? 
Every one of us in this room would say, yes. Both individually and as a church, we have endured the attacks of the schemes of the devil. So let's take this to heart. Satan wants to destroy our unity. So what does he do? He attacks individuals trying to find weakness. He desires to divide and conquer. That's why we, as Santa Cruz Baptist Church, we must band together and fight for unity. That's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. As mentioned earlier in 1 Peter 5, 8, the enemy is looking around for someone who he can devour. Satan knows that if he can stir up selfishness or jealousy or pride or distrust in just one person, he can paralyze the entire fellowship. Have you seen this happen? Let me give an example. You're at a holiday gathering with your family. All of you have your ar armor on because you know your mother-in-law is going to be there. <laughs> and Satan is just working and working and working until he finds that one individual. And that one individual either is selfish or is distrusting or is divisive. And what happens to the entire holiday gathering? It just explodes. Has anybody ever experienced that before? How about in the workplace? You ever seen that happen? One individual at work can disrupt an entire organization. That is the work of the enemy. How about in the church? He is, he is prowling around to find that one weakness in the armor. If I can just get in that church, I can disrupt the entire fellowship. And so he works. Can I get here? No, I can't get there. They got their armor on. Can I get here? No, they got their armor on. Ah, oh, I found it. And he weasels his way in. And then there we go. Disruption, disunity, division, hatred. And you look up at your church and you go, what happened? Well, it was that person. No, it wasn't. It was the scheme of the devil. It was the scheme of the devil. And he fired off all of his arrows and he got us. We're at war with the enemy. We're not at war with each other. We are at war with the enemy. We are not at war with each other. But that is one of the deceptive tactics Satan uses to destroy us. Verse 12 says, against the powers of this world that we are fighting, Paul reminds us here the Christian struggle is not just against Satan himself, but it is against a host of demonic subordinates a vast array of adversaries who, like the devil, are not flesh and blood. Our greatest enemy is not the world that we see, corrupt and wicked as it is. Our greatest enemy is the world that we cannot see. And so we're fighting against the devil's schemes. So let's look at a case study and see that's kind of called reconnaissance. We're looking at a case study to see in the book where God has specifically taught us about our enemy. Number one, Satan knows the Bible. Number two, Satan knows the power and the strategy of God. And so we turn to Luke chapter four and Christ's temptation. Can I remind you that Christ's temptation came immediately after his baptism, he was at a moment where his father in heaven split the heavens and said, this is my son. I am so proud of him. 
Would you listen to him? He's on a spiritual high. He comes off that high and he goes 40 days into the wilderness. And we get to Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when, uh, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, For it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. You see the scheme of the devil? And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said to him, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. You see the scheme of the devil? He then took Jesus to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Satan is saying, It is written? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And as if that's not enough, Jesus, I can memorize two verses. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him. It is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him until an opportune time. Know your enemy. Satan's strategy is to get us to question Scripture. His strategy is to question, is to get us to question the authority of God. I quote from Genesis 3. Did God really say? Do you know those were the very first recorded words of Satan in the Bible? Did God really say? Did his scheme work? And now we're left with the mess that Adam and Eve fell prey to from the scheme of the devil. In a perverted way, Satan imitates God's working and God's word. That is the scheme of the devil. Can you notice, can you expose the scheme of the devil? Or are you mere a pawn who doesn't have his armor on? He went after Jesus. Do you think he'll go after you? Study your enemy. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15 say, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Again, James gives us the formula for deliverance from the, de from the demons and the devil himself. James 4 Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So when Satan attacks, it's foolish for us to try to do battle with him alone. Like soldiers on duty, we must stand firm. We must be strong. 
and we must simply report to our commander in the heavens and leave the battle in his hands. As the Lord assured King Jehoshaphat, as his army faced a greatly superior forces in Moab and Ammon, 2 Chronicles 20.15 says, Do not fear or be dismayed because of the great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We know from God's word that Satan and his invisible demons are continually at work in this world and all around us. But we do not have wisdom to discern exactly where they are present, how many of them are, what kind they are, or what they are doing. They're in the heavenly realms. Saints, we tread on dangerous ground when we try to deal with the things for which Scripture does not give us the instruction, guidance, or authority to go fight against. We must do it by the book. We are to put on God's armor. We are to report to our Father in heaven, perfectly confident in the knowledge that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the very gates of Hades will not overpower Christ's church. Isn't that true? But we must do it by the book. If we think we can take our guns and run after it, that's not very wise. Not only is it important for us to know our enemy, next we need to know the resources that we have at hand for our defense and for our victory. And so verses 14 through 7 speak specifically to that. We need to be equipped with God's whole armor. As indicated by the, work, by the word having in verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet fitted, these first three pieces of armor are permanent. So in time of war, the believer is never to be without them. First, we look at the belt of truth. Girded up with the belt of truth. The belt of truth is right doctrine. It is right thinking. It is right integrity. Is my truth aligned with the truth of the word of God? Is my truth aligned with the character of Christ? We need not give the devil a foothold by neglecting to be a person of truth in our actions, attitudes, and words that do not align with the book. Y'all see that? My belt of truth. Second is my breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate is not one of self-righteousness. The breastplate of self-righteousness will as surely keep a believer out of the fellowship of God as well as it will keep an unbeliever out of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness ex exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 64.6 6 says, Our own righteousness, as, even as believers, is nothing more than filthy rags. We have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Self-righteousness brings us no favor with God, and it surely brings no protection from the enemy. Nor is Paul speaking here of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is the perfect righteousness that God applies to the account of every Christian the moment he or she repents and believes in Jesus Christ. That is imputed righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. We cannot put on imputed righteousness. God clothes us in that. He puts that on for us. 
So it makes no sense to hear, take up your imputed righteousness. You've already been given that at the moment of salvation. And oh, what a gift that is. What God has already closed us with, we cannot put on. We are permanently dressed in that righteousness. Here on earth and for eternity. But God's imputed righteousness is the basis for the opportunity for us to have taken up the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness that we then put on is called practical righteousness. It's of a life lived in obedience to God's word. Philippians 3 verses 12 through 14, Paul talks about this. Not that I've already obtained this or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Imputed righteousness makes practical righteousness possible. But only through submission and obedience to the Lord does practical righteousness become a reality. God himself puts our imputed righteousness on us. We must daily put on our practical righteousness. Third, feet fitted with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Isn't it amazing that in the midst of war, he throws in a verse about peace? Where else is the word of God more beautiful? In the midst of life and death, in the midst of attacks from the enemy, we can experience peace. The believer who stands in the Lord's power need not fear any enemy, even Satan himself. When Satan comes to attack us, our feet are planted firmly on the solid rock of the gospel of peace. We who were once God's enemies are now his children, and he offers us his full resources to stand firm, to be strong in the Lord. Romans 8, 31 and 37 through 39 say, If God is for us, who can be against us? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. You see what he's talking about? He's talking about the heavenly realms. He's not talking about your problems with your friends. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know how much God loves you? He loves you so much that he's given you everything you need battle you know that gospel preaches do you know what this world is longing for peace peace we get it in our shoes and then he transitions in Ephesians 6 14 and he uses the word in all circumstances this introduces the last three pieces of armor. First of all, the shield of faith. The shield of faith is not what you and I would envision. We get stuck with Captain America. They did not have Captain America. They had the Roman army. The Roman army would come, and I don't know if we have a picture of it. Do we have a picture of it, Jocelyn? The Roman army used this formation in battle called the Testudo Formation. 
In English, that is the tortoise formation. So if I can explain it to you, the tortoise formation is soldiers taking their shields. Their shields were not circular like Captain America. They were like the shape of a door. They were four foot long. They were two and a half feet wide. And they would have a, a, a knob in the middle of the shield. And they would hold that shield. And when they were heading toward a wall to take a city, guess what would be at the top of the wall? The archers of the enemy. The archers of the enemy would fire up their torches. They would put their darts and they would be shooting down at the soldiers. You don't get a picture of one little guy standing with his... That isn't how it works. That was my interpretation of how Roman soldiers would fight against the enemy. They would, they would lock shields together in the tortoise formation. The front row would put their shields here. Every row behind them would put their shields here. And they would literally create a covering and they would take a defensive posture and they could handle any attack from the enemy. It would withstand darts. It would withstand fiery darts. It would withstand boulders. It would withstand horses and chariots could ride over the tortoise formation and not penetrate the shields of faith. That is no joke. It's in the book. The locking of shields is critical to our shields of faith. Have you ever been attacked to the point that your faith gets shaken? And everybody would say, yes. Do you know that's why we need brothers and sisters in Christ? And we lock our shields together and so when I'm struggling and I'm about to go down, I'm linked in my shield with my brother or sister in Christ, with my brother or sister in Christ, with my brother or sister in Christ. And then we go, we got this. We got this. Faith conquers the evil one. Faith conquers the darts of temptation to wrath, to lust, to revenge, to despair. Our faith overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Catch this. Our faith. Did y'all catch that? Our faith even overcomes the prince of this world. 1 John 5, 18 says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Our faith overcomes the world. Our faith overcomes the prince of the world. So let's hold up our shield of faith. There are people in this room that are under attack. How sad would it be if they were only having to do it by themselves? That's why God gave us the church. We have each other. And when one is struggling and says, man, I don't know how much longer I can hold up this shield, the rest of us go, we got you. We got you. The helmet of salvation. Take up your shield of faith. Take up your helmet of salvation. The fact that the helmet is related to salvation indicates that Satan's blows are directing at our heads. It's directed at our security and our assurance in Christ. 
Satan's most disturbing attack against believers is to tempt us to believe that we have lost or that we could lose, even lose our salvation. Few things are more paralyzing and unproductive than insecurity. Since Paul is addressing believers, he is not telling us to put up our helmet of salvation saying, you just need to receive Christ. The only ones who can take up any piece of God's armor are those who are already saved. Assurance of salvation shows the real strength in our helmet. If we lost hope in the future promise of salvation, there can be no security in our present circumstance. This, no doubt, is why Paul calls this piece of armor the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, and 9 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for a helmet, our hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Again, Paul explains in Romans 8, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. This helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that during our current struggle with Satan, we, this struggle will not last forever and we will be victorious in the end. Our battle is not with each other. It's with the enemy. We are not in a battle so that we can lose. We're in a battle where we win. So be strong. Stand firm. Lock shields. And trust in the King of Kings. He wins. And so do we. Next, the sword of the Spirit. Again, we get these comical views of this Roman warrior, and it's wrong. We think of this big, huge sword. Y'all know? Y'all seen the picture? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The sword that Paul is referring to is called Mashira, which varied in length between 6 inches and 18 inches. Not kind of like the picture, you think. This dagger was between 6 and 18 inches. It was the common sword carried by a Roman soldier and was the principal weapon in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Carried in a sheath on its belt, it was always at hand and ready for use. It was the sword carried by the soldiers when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden. It was the sword that was wielded by Peter when he cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. It was used by Herod's executioners who put James to death. Like the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, it is always at hand, ready to be taken up and used when battle begins. Paul explicitly states that the sword of the Spirit is Scripture. It is the very Word of God. The Christian who does not know God's Word well cannot use it well. Satan will invariably find out where we are ignorant and where we don't know how to use our sword and he will attack us there. Reconnaissance. Satan will invariably look at you, figure out where you do not know the word of the Lord well and he will attack you there. It's called reconnaissance. Scripture is not a broad sword. It's a dagger. It's used with great precision. Christians who simply rely on our, their experiences of salvation or their feelings or their passion of the moment are poor soldiers. They use that to get them through every sort of spiritual attack. They get into countless compromising situations 
and they fall prey to all kinds of false ideas and false practices simply because they're ignorant of specific teaching in Scripture. Can I give you an example? There are denominations and people all throughout the world who have no clue what the theology of demons is about. And they wield that crazy sword, and how many people do they hurt and kill? When you understand the specific truth from the book, go to the book. The book is everything we need. It's the word of God. But if the only thing you're pulling out is John 3.16, could you imagine Jesus in the garden? Man shall not eat by bread alone. For God so loved the world. <laughs> but isn't that what we do? I am struggling with sexual temptation, yet all I know is, for God so loved the world. My marriage is being attacked. My children are being crushed for God so loved the world. We need a better sword. But it's more than enough. It's the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, Scripture is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Did y'all catch that? That's not talking about the physical realm. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Can we go back to our case study? Jesus Christ is tempted. What does he pull out? He pulls out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And his is a little six to 18 inch dagger. Can you imagine how well Jesus's little dagger was sharpened? Oh, that we would look like Christ. Verses 18 through 20. We've gotten through the six pieces of armor. We're all good now. And pray. And pray in the Spirit. And pray with perseverance. And pray all the time. Pray for all the saints. And pray. And pray. And pray. Prayer is not merely another godly weapon. Prayer is not a transition in the worship service. Prayer is not what you do just before you eat. Prayer is as important as any of those weapons. All the while we are fighting in our girdle of truth, in our breastplate of righteousness, in our shoes, in our shield of faith, in our helmet of salvation, in our sword of the Spirit, we are to be in prayer. Prayer is the very spiritual air that the soldier of Christ breathes. Prayer is that all-pervasive strategy in which spiritual warfare is fought. Do you know the first place you turn when you are being attacked? Prayer. Prayer. You don't turn to your own strategies against your friend against your family member who ruined your holiday. You turn to prayer and you pray in the spirit. You pray in the spirit. I'm praying in concert with the spirit. He is helping our weaknesses in Romans 8. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints. He intercedes according to the will of God. As we submit to the Holy Spirit, obeying his word, relying on his strength, 
we will be drawn into a close, intimate, deep relationship, deep fellowship with the Father and with His Son through prayer. We pray with perseverance. We pray for all the saints. And check this out. Paul says, and pray for me. Isn't that cool? Pray for me. My ankles are killing me. This soldier is driving me crazy. I have this spiritual attack. Why don't you, God, take this from me? Was that his prayer? It's not his prayer. His prayer was that he may utter the gospel of Jesus Christ when he opens his mouth, making known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. When Satan tempted him to be quiet about Christ, Paul wanted God's help to be bold and faithful to proclaim the gospel. Now that's a soldier. He knew the mission. He knew the mission. He did not divert from the mission when the enemy was attacking him. He locked shields. He got in a defensive posture. And he handled the schemes of the enemy. And he stood firm. And he pleaded with his brothers and sisters in Ephesus to pray for him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when asked the secret of his success in ministry, C.H. Spurgeon quoted, My people pray for me. How beautiful would it be leading up to Drew's sabbatical that we as brothers and sisters in Christ would pray for he and for Shannon and for Carson and Cruz and for Ruby and for Asher as we send Ross and Cameron off, that we pray for their family and pray for me. Well, you say, great sermon, Pastor. It was a bit long, but it was a good sermon. But it doesn't really apply to me. I've already been defeated. I've already been taken out. What if I feel like I've been knocked out? The very fact that you recognize this should be an encouragement. Acknowledgement means that you're still alive. Able to see hope and able to receive grace. The loss of one battle does not mean the loss of the war. By God's grace, you can fight again. So here's some specific tips to help you fight. First of all, Recuperate in the shelter of Christ and in his strength. There are times that you get wounded in battle. You know what you need to do? You need to get healed. Intentionally put on the whole armor of God. It's crazy to run out there with passion without the equipment. So intentionally put on the whole armor of God. That involves sharpening your weapon. You must know the Word of God. If you don't know the Word of God, you will not have right doctrine. You will not have right integrity. Intentionally put on the whole armor of God. Number three, learn to stand. Some people may be standing wrong. Learn how to stand and then practice standing. And then you will learn how to stand, stand firm. The final tip for those who feel like that they've been knocked out, but you're still here. Lock shields. Lock shields. You can't do this alone. Our enemy is too tough. Do y'all remember Ross reading that passage in Acts 19? I know him. I know him. But who are you? And the demons went after them, and they were naked, 
and they ran like little kids. That's an awesome passage. You know what I want Satan to say? Well, I can't mess with Rob. I can't mess with his family. Their shields are up. They're locked together. Man, their daggers are sharp. I got to go to someone else. How beautiful would it be if our entire church was locked together, arm in arm, as one battalion, and we said, Satan, we'll take anything you've got because our God is greater. And so we lock shields. And then he gets to the benediction. Verse 21. So that you may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus. What a tough name his mom gave him. <laughs> Tychicus. He was charged with two responsibilities. Number one, deliver the word of God to the church in Ephesus. And number two, encourage them. Do you know on this very Sunday, we've sent off our very own Tychicus. And Drew is taking the word of the Lord to a sister church. And he is encouraging them. How cool is that? Then Paul closes the letter with a statement about their personal relationship with Christ and God's personal relationship with them. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. So we, followers of Christ, we're called to stand firm during the spiritual warfare in the power of God with God's armor through constant prayer. We do that by being aware of this battle, by being equipped with his armor, and by being devoted in prayer. I close by asking you to think deeply about this battle we are in. We can tend to trivialize this passage. We can even make it a comic strip. But the reality is, as Sun Tzu stated, this is a matter of life and death. This road either leads to safety or it leads to ruin. Consequences for all of eternity. So my question, do you love Christ? Does he know you by name? Are you on the winning side of this battle? Have you repented from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I would implore you to lock shields with us. Lock shields with us. You do that by crying out to him in prayer. And you ask him to save you for eternity. He's worth that allegiance. Let's pray.